Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Lyle Ashton Harris. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University is presenting Lyle Ashton Harris, Our First and Last Love, a survey of Harris's career that features photographs, collage, archival material, and more. Harris's work engages transatlantic social and political dialogues, even as he foregrounds personal struggles, sorrows, and self-illuminations. The exhibition was co-curated by Caitlin Julia Rubin and Lauren Haynes. It will be on view at the Nasher through January 7th, 2024. A catalog is forthcoming. Harris's work is also included in Going Dark, the Contemporary Figure at the Edge of Visibility at the Solomon R. Guggenheim Museum in New York. The exhibition, which was curated by Ashley James with Faith Hunter, presents works of art that feature partially obscured or hidden figures, works that conceal the body to explore a key tension in contemporary society, the desire to be seen and the desire to be hidden from sight. It's on view through April 7, 2024. A catalog was published by the museum, and Amazon and IndieBound offer it for about $60 to $65. We'll have links on manpodcast.com. But wait, there's more. With Ni Obadai, Harris has guest-edited the latest issue of Aperture magazine. It considers the Ghanaian capital of Accra as a site of dynamic photographic voices and histories that connect visual culture in West Africa to the world. Harris didn't only co-edit the issue, his photographs are inside, as is a conversation between him, Vanessa Peterson, and John Acomfra. On the second segment, reckoning with Mie's Man with a Hoe at the J. Paul Getty Museum in Los Angeles. If you enjoy the show, please give us a five-star rating and a review wherever you download the program. Lyle Ashton Harris, after the break. On view through January 14th at the Getty Center, the new exhibition William Blake Visionary explores the unconventional art of painter, poet, and printmaker William Blake. Now celebrated as one of the greatest artists of the early Romantic era, Blake was largely unrecognized during his lifetime and lived mostly in obscurity. Follow his journey as an artist from his early years as a commercial printmaker to the legendary creator we know today, exploring Blake's wild imagination through acclaimed works that have perplexed and delighted audience for over 200 years. This major international loan exhibition is organized in cooperation with Tate. Plan your visit and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. Now on view at the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago, Entre Horizontes, Art and Activism Between Chicago and Puerto Rico. Experience the artistic connections and social justice movements that link Puerto Rico with Chicago via an intergenerational group of artists alongside rich archival material that traces the relationships between art, politics, place, and identity. Plan your visit at mcachicago.org. Support for the Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation in St. Louis, presenting Sarah Crowner Around Orange, curated by Stephanie Weisberg, on view from September 8th to February 4th, 2024. Bold abstraction and intense color are signatures of the New York-based painter Sarah Crowner, who brings these elements to the Pulitzer. In three new site-specific artworks, Crowner pays homage to the architecture of the Pulitzer's Tato Ando building and the vision of Ellsworth Kelly, whose monumental wall sculpture Blue Black is on permanent view in the Pulitzer's main gallery. Check out the exhibition on the Pulitzer's digital guide through Bloomberg Connects, the free arts and culture app. The digital guide takes you behind the scenes at the Pulitzer with exclusive multimedia perspectives from artists, curators, and more. Use the app to plan your visit, then easily access helpful insights on site. Afterward, dive deeper into your favorite works at home or anywhere, anytime. 
For more info, visit pulitzerarts.org. And we're back. Lyle Ashton Harris, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Oh, it's wonderful to be here. It's good to see you. I wanted to start with self-portraiture because self-portraiture has been important within your work since the beginning, since you were a 22-year-old student at Wesleyan in, in the late 1980s. The classic reason artists have made pictures of themselves are because the model was available, because they were available to themselves, and because self-portraiture is an opportunity for self-definition and maybe even a little bit of marketing. So, so did your reasons for making self-portraiture have anything to do with those classic reasons, or was it something else entirely? I mean, I think, I guess it was an assignment that I was probably given, and that I gave in my class as a professor. As you probably know, I was an econ major at Wesleyan. In 85, I went over to visit my brother. I want to be Izod Prep and dropped out of school for a semester and took a couple of classes in the city. But prior to, I guess, dropping out for a semester, I took a photo class with Jay Seeley and at, at Wesleyan. And that was one of the assignments, you know. And yeah, the do self portraits. And I think it's probably one of the, I, we had certain rules. You could photograph no squirrels on campus, on Wesleyan's campus. And we were required to do self-portraits, and it's something that I took to. But, you know, it is a staple of, you know, contemporary work, but also, you know, historical, you know, the tradition of art, you know. And that's something that I was very much inspired by. I remember when I was at Wesleyan, prior to changing my major to studio art, there was a the late Ellen Dench, who was head of the Davidson Art Center, and she she introduced me to Francesca Woodman's work. And so that was an early body of work that I looked at. Yeah, so I think it was something that, I mean, obviously it was I saw Mapplethorpe's work, you know, I saw um, Jen Vanazzi. I would say it's something that I've, you know, I've been very curious about. But it's, I mean, I think it's just, a, it's, it's a way to, I guess, get familiar with the self. But I think I know later on, I think the, the poet Essex Hemphill told me is like using the body as a, a canvas, if you will, and the fact that taking through a series of experiments. So I think, in a way, one could use a self because it's hard to language what you might actually want somebody else to do with that. So I think it's a way of, yeah, working through. And I, I would say that the early, the earliest of the self-portraits of my work were actually done, a couple of which are in the Traveling Museum show, were done at, at Wesley in the literary fraternity I was staying in, you know, with a, a 60 watt goose light bulb. There was almost an explosion, if you will. I mean, just sort of like I had at that time, they weren't the first, but it was the first quote unquote official self portraits. If you think about Untitled Number One or Ecstasy, that I, I later took some of those props, if you will, into the formal studio, but they had the origin in terms of like being in this d dormitory, trying to figure out what am I doing with my life, you know, hanging out with kids who are much more wealthier than I was at Wesleyan, deciding to stop doing ecstasy. It was almost like, almost like a, a, a birthing, if you will, that there was something that felt primal if you will, thinking about those early, early black and white self-portraits. I was going to say a couple of those early self-portraits are called ecstasy, ecstasy number one, ecstasy yes. number two. Exactly. In fact, ecstasy 
number one and two, if you look closely, you could see that, I mean, they're very abstract and they, there's something primordial about them and they were actually done in the, as I mentioned before, a small room, my bedroom, and there was something, you know, with the tripod and FM2 and something. In fact, I was not using FM2 at that time. I was using the Pentax K1000. Do you remember what the assignment he gave you was that had you making self-portraits? Do you remember what the substance of the assignment was? It was something it was to be do, it was to do something inside of a studio, but also to photograph the self. So yeah, I think I think I, 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 I don't recall. I know for me, in terms of the assignment that I give at NYU, where I've been teaching for a number of years, the students are required. It's it's an advanced course on the performative and photography, and they are required to read this essay by Nancy Spector, and it's an essay that was first published in Jennifer Blessing's Landmark for a landmark show called A Rose is a Rose is a Rose, one of the first gender performance shows that was I was in at the Guggenheim in 97. And I was all, I also did a visual essay for it. But in this particular essay, it's looking at the history of performance. So they're required to read that and to do two forms of self-portrait. One is to stage something for themselves, you know, in the, in the confines of a room or the bedroom, what have you. And the other is to actually do a performative action in a public space and to have that documented. So it's something that I'm never surprised over the years that I've given that assignment that what comes up from that, because people, students are required to grapple with the self and to see sharing them with work, give them a certain sense of you know agency with themselves, but also how they they might bring their own social political aspects you know, into that in terms of showing them work for Kathy Opie or Sonelli Maholi or so to see it's not just the idea of photographing oneself, but in terms of how you can use that experience to also channel, if you will, some of the ideas or concerns that you might actually have. That early series of yours, self-portraits, that includes nudes, is called Reflection of Past Life Through Glass. Speaking of performance, in an oral history you did with the Smithsonian's Archives of American Art in 2017, you talked about taking classes from Hazel Carby, a leading scholar on Black womanhood and Black masculinity, and how important those classes were to you at about this time in the late in the late 1980s. But you and the interviewer, who is a Yale PhD student named Alex Fialho, both kind of quickly moved from mentioning Carby to running off in other directions. So I was wondering what it was you were learning or picking up from Carby that informed maybe that first decade or so of self-portraiture you, you made. Okay, and I think it's also important to clarify that it wasn't just self-portraiture. There right. were no, that's good. characters, if you actually will. Now that may be deploying the self or my body to explore various tropes. So I think it's important to make this. Yeah, thank you. Because there were other figures that people that figured prominently in that early body of work that you mentioned, A Past Life Through Glass, which consists of 20 black and white works, and also includes the triptych, the the Americas. To your point, the Hazel Carby, the great Hazel Carby, is a renowned scholar uh, who taught at Wesley for a number of years and and then went on to head the women's studies program at Yale, as you know. And Hazel, a student, another student of Hazel Carby was the great Saidiya Hartman, 
In fact, Saidia told me a couple of years ago, the evening of Jason and Alyssa Moran's performance, I believe uh, it was at the Met, wherever that was, that Hazel, she wanted to give me a B and Hazel insisted on an A. So just... She was the only professor in my whole history at Wesley who I could quote unquote not get over. But she was someone who, uh, along with I would say Robert O'Mealy, the great scholar Billy Holiday and Ralph Ellison, who I think saw me in a way, if that makes any sense. And there was something about, I don't know, I mean, it's just sort of hard to state, overstate, but in her course, particularly the one on, I think it was 19th century Reconstruction Womanhood, I think that that's the name of the book. And we were looking at role of the various tropes in the black imagination, thinking like thinking about the idea of the tragic mulatto that has quote unquote, which has been maligned, let's say, in in speaking of film, in terms of American film, i.e. birth of a nation, and other forms of let's say Southern literature, but in actuality, that figure, if you will, was a, a much more radical figure. And I was interested in the idea of of how do you use that alongside various tropes of vaudeville. If you think about in early American theater, vaudeville, that there were women who, men, excuse me, white men who were prior to having black subjects, there were white, white men performing both women as well as black folks in terms of you think of black people as well as you think of the blacking up. So I was interested in the complexity around that. So those were some of the themes and ideas. And she introduced me to the work of Skip Gates, the great Skip, and his book, I think, Signing the Radical Self. So there was something about the, the Hall of Fame character. It was something that is just, for me, was an admixture of various ideas, if you will, or tropes without question informed that early body of work. That was almost, I don't know, an explosion of ideas to try and somehow give language or skin to some of the ideas that had what I found like deeply stimulating and also complicated. If you think about what did it mean to have an analysis of, let's say, drag, if you will, or, you know, let's say white men performing blackface or white men performing, performing as women. And there was something about the complexity around that that felt gave it an historical context and it was definitely mining that alongside, let's say, the the contempt coming, you know, being queer, also coming from a very sheltered family, being introduced to, let's say, Grace Jones. I mean, at the same time, having the experience of being young, black and queer, you know, from a very spiritual, religious family in New York and going down and hanging out, let's say, with kids, club kids in Lower East Side. Well, Lower East Side, maybe some clubs, but really... Area at the time was a place in which you know I was hanging out with. So I think in a way that gave me a way to situate or to ground, let's say, these ideas, but in a circle context, and to un to unpack and to draw a conceptual link across the century versus without 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 somehow denying or erasing the specificity of the performative gesture, the transgressive gesture of the contemporary drag, but it's the situated. That was important for me that it at once accomplished, you know, I mean, not so much accomplished, but engaged with a multiplicity of identities that almost became irrefutable. I would imagine that also in these same years, kind of the late 80s, maybe through the mid 90s, your life experience had led you to 
inhabit a number of different personas. You'd lived in the U.S., you'd lived in Tanzania, you'd traveled through East Africa, you'd traveled through Europe. I'm sure you've been plenty of other places I'm not thinking of. I guess I'm asking if your experience as an unusually broad global citizen informed your interest in or ability to take on roles in, in, your, in your own work. I would say yes. And I would say in retrospect, yes, maybe that was happening. But at the time, it was almost out of necessity. You know, how does one negotiate into multiple spheres, let's say growing up in the family in the Bronx and having a South African family, a South African father, stepfather? you know, who raised my brother and I. And anyone who was involved in the African National Freedom Fighter passed that house. You know, several of them became, in some cases, you know, a president or some case, you know, politicians or diplomats. But at that time, they were very much part of the African National exile community. To have that experience in the Bronx, for example, as a child while growing up, or having lived in East Africa after my parents, you know, divorced, and my mother taking uh, my brother and I to live there, you know, as two kids, you know, and to imagine, although we, I became from a, a historical and somewhat progressive church, it was radically different in Harlem, Bethel AME, where my grandparents, you know, met at and got married in 32. Uh, Vanazzi did their, as you know, Vanazzi did their wedding portrait, but and to have that deep enclave of, let's say, not so much respectability, but an understanding of history. Given all that, I don't know if we were prepared to, as a young American, a young African-American, to live in a Black African country that had, had recently had their own independence. I mean, that was a radical for us at that time. And I think without question, it has informed both my brother and brothers and I, sense of self and identity, uh, our world outlook. And then to come back to the U.S. after that, you know, and I think it's sort of hard to say unless you've actually lived abroad that, you know, we're living in like an opposed, you know, slavery society here. And it's radically different to be in a country where people are, it's just a, it's just a sense of uh, agency, embodiment, you know, in every aspect. So there was having to use tropes of masking to somehow, if you think about being in Tanzania, where it was much, much more fluid in terms of like, it wasn't that restrictive in terms of, let's say, notions of masculinity. And that was quite, there was a violence to coming back and, you know, becoming a faggot, if that makes any sense, where we're being named as such before I knew what that was. I might mean, knew what it was because I had had experiences, you know, you know, the prepubescent, but, you know, in, in Tanzania, you know, you know, I'd had, I understood there was a certain type of fluidity, but to come back to a very, very strict notion of masculinity, let's say, like in the U.S. So I would say that getting to those, back to those photographs, that I think they also involve that as well, in terms of like using aware of operating in multiple, let's say, spheres and the risk of that at the same time, the using it notions of veiling as a way to somehow once trigger, but also to veil. I mean, so it's complicated. There's a complexity to it. No, you're also reminding me that you and I are both of the age where we've read Larry Kramer. And surely kids these days maybe haven't. But but you young queers go read your Larry Kramer and feel, <laughs> feel as old as us. Uh, I wanted to ask one quick thing about the Good Life series before talking a little more about Africa. The Good Life series is pictures of you, comma, and of other people. 
the pictures of you off in your performing roles, such as those we, we, we just discussed, think like Tucson Overture, for example. All of those Good Life series pictures, with a single exception, feature the same background, a black and red background. Very intense background. Red, black, and green. I was going to, okay, so I was going to ask if that was light bleed or if there was actually green over there. What happened, I I can explain to you what happened. Yeah. Well, it was very much inspired by the UNIA flag. As you know, contrary to popular belief that people situate the flag to the 70s, the UNIA, the red, black, and green flag was accepted by Marcus Garvey at the Universal Negro Improvement Association, I believe in 1917, as the official flag for the Black race. So I was interested in how in the 70s that there was a very hetero masculineness reading, rendering of who can lay claim to that. So I was very much inspired by the editorial in, um, I believe, the New York Times by Alice Walker that I deployed in a show of mine the show at Victory Parade as part of the Creative Time 1993 art project, where I actually put the text where she spoke about the complexities of two Black men who were Panthers and how it was easier to annihilate another as opposed to see how they may have a shared history of violence, love, and intimacy. So though that's one of the, not so much that was one of the, the narratives that informed, but the multiple narratives. So I was interested in taking or engaging or deploying this UNIA flag to try and create a, a tableau to deal with the complexities of the culture. So in the case of, we actually um, got, I think it was several feet of velvet, red, black, and green, but the Polaroid, no matter how much light we put in the backdrop, the green was so dense that it read black, not in all of them. So for the unique Polaroids, it's still there. The green is there, but we did some post-production on the additions afterwards to insert the green so it's much more prevalent. If you look, if you actually look at them, the red, black, and green is definitely there. It's just a little more subdued. Because on, on a lot of them, the green is at the extreme right of the frame, and it, it looks like light bleed in this, you yes. know, like, like camera so, bleed in the sense that yeah. there appears to be a green line almost between the viewer and the subject of the picture, for yes. example. Africa. You know, we started talking a moment ago about how Africa has been important to your work, your life, your biography. I, I think when I was kind of running down the list of African travel and living experiences a moment ago, I didn't mention that you've lived in Ghana. I think you mentioned that your stepfather is South African. So for the vast majority of U.S. artists, going back to the, to the 18th century, their primary orientation has been Europe and European art history. And we're going through a period in the United States now where many artists are consciously, intentionally orienting their practice around an Africa-U.S. axis rather than a U.S.-Europe axis. And I think in a lot of ways... You were in the vanguard of that in the eighties and nineties. Well, I would say there have been people. We have to, we have to, without question, recognize that even before the great visionary Nkrumah, who led Ghana to independence, when he invited Myangelo Du Bois, he died. He invited him, and he 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 was buried there. 
to Richard Wright, the great Richard Wright, whose book on Black Power is based on documenting the transition from the Gold Coast to Ghana. Even before that, going you know going back you know to the 30s, there has been an interest. Let's say if you think about Senghor, there has been an interest in. Africans, Caribbeans, people, African-Americans, their relationships you know, to the continent. My, I mean, without question, my grandfather, never, he never went to Africa, but we grew up in the family. He, and he was, a, he was a, a race man. He was a talented 10, but every, and he's someone, he got a full scholarship. His, his, his father was a war hero who my mother, most recent book, or her first historical novel, The Age of 80, Cold War and Love, narrates an historical novel narrating her grandfather who traveled the world, you know, and he was, he was part of, you know, the Harlem Hellfighters. So there has been an interest in Africa. If you think about the, the AMA church going back, you know, more than a century. So there's a history of the interest in Americans, in African-Americans, as well as Caribbeans who have had a leaning and a call to Africa, whether in the imagined space, but also traveling there. So I think it's important to somehow say that. And if you think about that, Marilyn Nance's work, whose work you should, you should definitely have on, 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 on your podcast, if she hasn't been on yet, that Remy from the MoMA recently worked with her on the, public, the publication of her book, you know, Fest Parker in 1977. In fact, in the show at the Brooklyn Museum that closed recently on the African, uh, African fashion that came from the V&A. And unlike the V&A installation, the two curators of African art at the Brooklyn Museum, they actually had a timeline looking at the history of independence. So situating fashion style, whether that's Nkrumah or the great Haile Selassie, fashion and style as part of the revolutionary, revolutionary somehow constructing of a revolution, if that makes any sense. In fact, in Krumah, for example, the fact choosing to take off the robe, if you will, of the, the, the oppressors and to put on traditional costume cloth, if you will. So I would say it's important to acknowledge the fact that it has, this is part of a legacy that has been going on for, you know, for decades, if not centuries. Jacob Lawrence in Nigeria. Yeah. Precisely. Last year, you did an interview with Alana Eritam, in which you mentioned that there are very different traditions of European and African photography. What are the specific traditions within African photography that have been important to you? Well, I, I don't recall that particular <laughs> comment, but I would say that I have been, I don't necessarily think of them as being distinctly different, although they have their own particular distinct histories. You know, I would say that I've been very much initially influenced by the modernist tradition, you know, of you know, European photography, but I'm also, you know, very much um, inspired, let's say, by a lot of European artists who've come here to the U.S., photographers, and have shined a whole radically different light on uh, American culture that we as Americans could not see. Um, namely, you know, Robert Frank. Imagine, let's say, if he had, he wasn't, let's say, a Southerner or a Northerner. He was someone who had the experience of being an outsider who was able to not have the shackles of the paradigm of American be able to see in a very naked way, what was present. And we are all indebted to that archive. But that said, 
I think it's important, very much inspired, let's say, by the tradition of of portraiture, studio portraiture in Africa, and how just the idea of the construction of the self, of community, of play, of how that particular history was a major critique of, let's say, the history of ethnography. I think about photography, because I think it's important to talk about from the inception of photography, it's always been not just about bourgeois portraiture, but it has been a tool of control and of empire. You know, if you think about ethnography, the history of ethnography and photography. So I'm interested in how the radicality of the, the studio practice of African photographers, you know, who, from Malik Bay, you know, and James Barner, you know, so I think I, I'm, I'm interested in that house offered another, another sensibility. And equally, if you think about the great Ernest Cole in terms of like his seminal masterly work, House of Bondage, in terms of offering the world a penetrating fierce critique of, let's say, apartheid, and to have that body work to be disseminated, you know, throughout, you know, Europe, throughout America, and to galvanize, you know, to help to somehow support an anti-apartheid, you know, movement. I mean, I'm, I'm in also Aperture, you know, recently published, you know, a book of his, the republication of the seminal um, House of Bondage. And Remy at the MoMA, she currently has an amazing exhibition where she has the original edition plus other and um, installation of photographs as well as other photographers who have also been part of the anti-part documenting the anti-party movement. And that's the power of photography, the power of art, the power of that museum context to be able to offer people that, that experience of history. And I, I remember then most recently I went to see the show again with friends of my family, my South African family, friends of uh, of ours, and this and these are she's around a couple of years younger than I, so she was very much aware of apartheid. But I mean, she they live a, a, a very much of a middle class life right now. But there was she got teared eyed because she could recognize the the imagery and to be activated in terms of the legacy of apartheid, in terms of let's say forced movement, you know the genocidal behavior of the South African Boers in relationship to Black South Africans. So there was something about her seeing those and and she was there was the, there was the, that was the first time in the US and just seeing those images. I mean that was that was the first thing it took him to see besides the Edward Shea's show at the at the moment for them to go there to see them and actually to document them. You mentioned African studio portraiture a moment yeah. ago. African studio portraiture having a little bit of a moment in the US recently with the Van Leo survey um, at the Hammer Museum that was on the podcast a couple months ago. Your uh, portfolio you've published of of work from 2005 in the new uh, issue of Aperture, which you co-edited, features a portfolio of yours called Ghana Society. Is that body of work your engagement with the African studio portraiture tradition? Um, I guess one could say that. Um, I mean, I guess I, I didn't quite think about that. Those were taken on the occasion in a very informal way, although they're, they're formal portraits. They were taken because my, my dear, dear friend, Sanam Okujato, whose parents are featured in, the, in that particular portfolio, she invited me to this, this malarial foundation that was happening my first semester I was uh, living in Ghana. And it happened to be frequented by these, you know, by people who are 
leading um, patients of the arts, you know, like the sitting first lady, and they're also people who are very much involved in the nation building, you know, in Ghana. I would say they're definitely engaging with the trope of studio portraiture, but they're very familiar to me. And the fact that, I mean, it was something, I mean, I think it's important to somehow say that I didn't set out to say, well, I'm going to take these formal portraits of these people, let's say in Ghana, that one of the women, one of the women, Mrs. Scott, you know, she was my landlord. You know, she was the ambassador, you know, from Ghana to the Holy See. Her um, husband, um, the late Colonel Scott, built the first uh, modernist glass house in the south of the Sahara in 1960. It was in Domus Magazine in 62. She was the, her grandfather built the, the, the library system. So I think there was a way of like, you know, it's, it's, a very, it's also very familiar. You know, these are people like Sanam's family were very much integral in terms of like situating me, let's say, in, in Ghana, you know, so they, they, they appear quite formal, but these are people that I, several of which I broke bread with. <laughs> I think it's also important to say that you mentioned that there is a, a reemergence or an interest in African portrait photography. I think it's important to acknowledge the landmark show that the great Oakley, late great Oakley Razor did at the Guggenheim, I believe, in 98. I think it's also important to acknowledge, you know, how he, in, in collaboration, but one can also argue singularly, shifted the terrain of the contemporary landscape, not just in terms of Africa, but in terms of the contemporary. So this is something that has been going on. And I think it's important to talk about how he's not the only one, but how that these exhibitions that we're seeing right now are not just popping out because of their, they become the new curatorial interest, that there's been a deep philosophical, intellectual rupturing of the canon, not to mention people like, you know, the great Monte Diawar in terms of, you know, him being the most, you know, famous critique, you know, engagement, let's say, Francophile African cinema and literature. The Ghana Society portraits that are in Aperture are as much pictures of textiles as they are pictures of people. There's a dramatic textile background. The people are wearing fabulous, what I presume are Ghanaian textiles. And in recent years, in the last three or four years, you've made a number of works that include actual Ghanaian textiles. So I don't, I, you know, not photographs of Ghanaian textiles, but the actual real deal. Is there a relationship between those 2005 works in the new aperture and the works you've made in the last few years featuring Ghanaian textiles? Loosely. And I think it's important to somehow say right now, when I joined the board of Aperture, I guess, about a year or two ago. And one of the first things that I told my good friend, the director of Aperture, Sarah Meister, Sarah Meiser, formerly of MoMA, and that I wanted, as well as Michael Magetti, who is the editor-in-chief, was that I wanted to work on an issue of Ongana. And given that one of the early visionary friends of Aperture, Paul Strand was invited by Nkrumah, along with the great Richard Wright, to help in the formation, the creation of this languaging or depicting or imagining and documenting this transition. So it was important to me that we do an issue in Accra. They had did an issue on Africa, but it was important given the prominence of Ghana in the imagination, you know, that culminated, let's say, 
in the Venice Biennale a few years ago that we actually began to give a certain documentation of the complexities of that space, if you will. And it was important to me, you mentioned the Ghana Society portraits, but it's also important to somehow specifically state that within that issue, there's also a commission by Frankie Ndozo, who was a colleague of mine at NYU. He's a Nigerian professor and writer, former award-winning journalist, to do an issue on title When We Were Out, documenting the history of queer bars or queer spaces in Ghana. And it's important to me that this issue not only presents documents that, as well as the Ghanaian society, as well as the history of various people from diaspora narrating their own story of Ghana, that one magazine houses the complexities and the contradictory space that is modern, let's say, Ghana. And I think the reason this issue has really resonated with people is that often you would go maybe to see one aspect of it. But what does it mean to somehow have an issue that the First Lady has recently you know, requested 10 copies where people can actually go? And that's important of, let's say, publications. I've always known that. Or books. There's one thing to say something on TV, but inside of a personal experience of a book or publication, one could have a different level of discursivity. So I just want to give, you know, voice to why this issue is important. That's why Nee and I, Nee Obadiah and I, really wanted to work on an issue that had that type of historical weight. But to your point about the fabrics, I would say yes, in that when I first arrived in Ghana, within the first couple of months, I went out out one night and I met a man by the name of Prince, who became my partner for seven years. And we traveled to Kumasi, where he is. He was the grandson of the village wife to the former president, Kufour. And we went to the palace, you know, so, and he had a complicated but not so dissimilar relationship to mine in terms of like estranged fathers in terms of, and so we had that in common. Anyway, so he went to visit his uncle at the palace and we were both received. And a year later on the occasion, this was the man who raised him, of him, the uncle dying, we went back, you know, along with my, my driver and dear friend Peter, who was my confidant. We drove up there six hours from Accra to Kamasi, for the funeral. And I was, it's hard to describe the level of eruption, the imaginer that I experienced to see just the the funerary procession, you know, not only the demonstrative around the grieving, you know, the really the opening up of which very familiar with me growing up in a black church, but within the funerary um, experience, there was also a time set aside for Thanksgiving, for the acknowledging of the ancestors, for communion, for um, celebration. And that was, I mean, that was very, it was, it was, it was shocking. It was also, but also the way in which fab- fabric played a role, not just in terms of like that fabric as a way to convey that one is in the process of mourning, but also that one is also in the process of, let's say, a grieving, but one is also in the process of, let's say, acknowledging and respecting the ancestors. So just to see that shift 
in terms of the the donning, the wearing of fabric, and then how in any given day in Ghana, you'll see people wearing red fabric, you know that they're in mourning, like for a month. So the fact that it's something that death is part of the culture. And although the idea of mourning and the respecting of that process is very much part of the culture. So that's something that interested me greatly. And then I also was introduced to the head of ATL, which is a leading textile by my dear friend, the great writer, Mary Donkwa, whose father is one of the big six, one of the founders of Ghana. And I was able to get scores of fab. So I became interested you know, in it. And not to mention befriending the late, he went by I Lost Man, but he was a, a Kente cloth dealer. So I purchased several vintage Kente cloth. And I also want to credit the great late Joe Nkrumah, who was a, a historian. He went to Florence during the Florence floods in 67, because he was a conservator. And he's someone that I was introduced early on when I first went to Ghana and he, we taught classes together. And he was like someone who welcomed me, let's say, into the culture and spoke with me and taught me about explicit art. For example, that explicit art in terms of people like were you know, like signage on the road or, I mean, and they have value on that. It makes any sense. For example, let's say a sign painter who may be a barber, that their barber would be mobile. They'd be carrying a sign. And the fact that just to have open up my eyes to say what is art and what is not. So I would say all those things without question, those inf- influence, let's say, my, or deepened, if you will, my my respect, you know, for the culture, um, through fabrics, through cloth, etc. All those things for me, in a way, helped me to not just be an American living in an American enclave or European enclave or NGO enclave in Ghana, but to be deeply immersed. And I would say that was my experience. I remember within the first, you know, couple of months there, I mean, you could be an American or European or African-American and still stay in a very close community. And that was not my experience. One of the highlights of the show now at the Nasher is that we get to see you thinking through the archive. The, the archive has been a major interest of your, I guess, not just your work, but your your practice for, for many decades. We get to see in the Nasher show a lot of stuff from that archive, including like a Polaroid journal from, from the 1990s. One of your grandfathers was a photographer and an archive builder. As I understand it, Beginning in the 1940s, he built something like a 10,000 image archive of your family. Yes, shooting an actochrome, probably, I think, probably as early as the late 40s. Yes. With a, a like that's, yes. I, I think we have like a couple hundred pictures of my family. So, like, 10,000 is, is, is just an amazing number. It's a heck of a lot of images. So, how old were you when you found out about his archive, and how did you, how have you come to experience it? Getting to my grandfather, Albert Sidney Johnson. Um, my grandfather was an economist, a systems analyst at the Port Authority, but he shot, he was an amateur, service amateur photographer who shot over 10,000 slides, you know, as you mentioned, documenting his friend, friends, family, the church. And I was aware of it at a young age because we, just in terms of being the subject of his photo, of, of his camera, you know, and he, there was a running joke in my family that he would take forever, but he was composing, he was constructing, he was framing the image. And so... That's the next project my brother and I want to work on. We're talking to Aperture right now that to look at that archive that documents 
a extended family, but also a history of a 200-year-old church, Harlem, but also just the familiar. He was also shot still lives in terms of like he shot his tulip bud, his wife, you know, over a period of, you know, 50 decades. He shot his three daughters. And they just, I mean, it also documents, you know, Black life, you know, Black and middle-class life in the Bronx, also in Harlem, a few generations of bishops, you know, ministers, you know, who are deeply prominent in the church. Also, the idea of ritual, you know, the fact that pageantry within the church in terms of like, in terms of where, I mean, clearly I went to Wesleyan, but the real education happened in, you know, in the basement, you know, in terms of like, you know, in terms of doing, learning how to recite poetry, you know, learning about Black history before there was a Hazel Carby or, you know, Robert, Robert and Mealy. Those histories were learned inside the, inside the church. I think Skip Gates does a remarkable job, his six-part documentary on the Black church. And that is within those repositories where the real history, language, construction of self, if you will, identity, were formed. And my grandfather, who was the treasurer of the church for 37 years, and my grandmother, the head of the YPD, I mean, we were the Johnsons, sort of like, you know, I definitely understood my certain sense, not just by going to church, but the fact that through the idea of being documented. If you think about many years later, 96, when I did that story on called the warding hole, looking at the idea of the Dharma-esque and those young men who were killed and, you know, literally consumed by Dharma. That story, you know, I was in a set of a Richie Havens concert in 91 with my mother and a friend of a, a friend of the family's broke that story. And I remember being totally tricky because the association, the stereotypical association of pedophilia with homosexuality, as you know, most pedophiles are, quote unquote, straight, you know, straight, quote unquote, with 2.5 kids. But the fact that those young men had never had a codec moment and to create language and to flesh out a certain history, whereas that wasn't my experience, you know, I was imagined within the context of the Black family, the Black church, through, you know, through ectochrome, you know, the construction of self, like the camera, multiple cameras how we see, how we vision, how we frame, how we language, you know, history and skin, identity, confidence, et cetera. There are two things I want to ask about before we wrap up. One more about the archive. There is a work in the survey from 2017 called Obsess Out 2. Obsess Out translates to obsession. It's made up of uh, an immense number of images, 317 in all, I think. And you've described it as a work about the process of image editing. Image editing is the making of a lot of decisions. And there are over 317 decisions here, because, of course, there were things you chose not to include. Why does image editing and having to make that damn many decisions interest you? The reason I like Obsess How and Obsess How 2, what I should say that at first, it was part of the blow-up series, which began in 2005. This one was specifically done on site for the Sao Paulo Biennial in 2016, and hundreds of images were pinned directly to the wall outside the installation. And then it was restaged, reconstructed as part of a two-part panel, which is 10 by 13, and that's its current formation. So although it has the look of it being pinned to the wall, it is a piece that is 
archivally and permanently on those two panels. But what's particular around this particular blow up, if you will, in comparison to the dad piece that's at the in the Guggenheim collection that was done on vacation for my performance at Participant Gallery in 2017, is that it archives the thinking through the ectochrome archive and trying to edit those images for the aperture publication. Today, I should judge nothing that occurs. And those images, those small images were printed out and I was working with my editor, Leslie, working through, but the images themselves started, I believe, in New York. They went to South Africa when I was there on a residency, working through the edit. And they they just capture, for me, that working through process of editing a book. Additionally, it also captures the political unrest at that time in Brazil, and as, as well as documenting the, I believe, the Pulse nightclub massacre. So for me, it's a, confl- a confluence of multiple things that are happening at that particular time historically. So I would say Obsessed Sal, in a way, captures captures that, you know? If you think about, it was before Bolsonaro came into power, but thinking about it was, and at that time when we were in, installing that piece, that there was major demonstrations happening in the capital of Sao Paulo during the install. So I'm just thinking about, it, it, it doesn't, it's pre-COVID, if you think about what has happened in terms of the, fortunately, we're in a radically different point in terms of Brazil politics right now, but it sort of captures and anchors the specificity of that particular experience, as well as what I was working through the Actochrome archive. I think for me, that particular blow up really captures the process of working through images, trying to identify who people are, just the, the, the act of editing. It's also the act of discovery. I mean, yes. those of us who spend a lot of time working in archives know that it's not just the past, it's, it's the present because you're discovering stuff in the past. I want to begin to wrap up by asking about the way you've been making recent work. You've been making recent work, including the shadow works using the dye sublimation process. So dye sublimation is a digital printing technology that uses heat to apply an image. It's not a process that was developed for fine art per se, but rather for like clothing or signage or or whatnot. And what's interesting to me about your use of it lately is that it not recreates, but but brings back a certain intensity and saturation of color that was in like those good life works from the 90s. All a long way of asking, why did dye sublimation appeal to you as a way of printing and making work? I work very closely with a, an amazing studio, um, Griffin, Charlie Griffin, his team. And I was thinking, particularly after the watering hole were found their home, and I was working on these large blow-ups. I remember Oakley was saying at some point to somehow, he loved the blow-ups. He felt he would find them a little bit uncontainable. So he felt that it would be good to try and think of a frame. I wanted something to think of something, unique works, but also something that had 
that was almost indestructible. And I really like the fact that die subs, as you said, are a very, it's an indestructible uh, aluminum and that they have, they able to really retain a deep saturation of, of color. And that's something that I wanted. I also wanted something that, that could stand the test of time. As you know, sometimes photography, you know, tends to fade. And I remember when one of these works, uh, one of the works of mine was acquired by the National Portrait Gallery, as well as also by the Met. And often those institutions require that you have a print for display and a print for the drawers, you know, and they, Say so they did not need the ones with the drawers because it's been proven that the die subs, you know, will ta- stand the test of time. But, you know, a lot of artists, you know, my friend Cindy Sherman, many artists now are working in die subs. So it's, I think it's been become the go to premier way of thinking about, yeah, deploying image based work. And there's a flattening out for me that I've really uh, I've been interested in a number of years or decades now in terms of like, working with montage, you know, that unlike the blow-ups of which are collage works, you know, that the shadow works for me hark back to the the cibachrome works of the watering hole, but are less toxic for the environment. Lyle Ashton Harris, thanks very much. Well thank you. This has been thoroughly engaging and I appreciate appreciate it. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Robert Frank and Todd Webb, Across America, 1955. Step into a unique photographic journey with Robert Frank and Todd Webb, two photographers who were both funded by Guggenheim Fellowships to capture America in 1955. The New York Times had this to say. While Robert Frank was driving across the United States, Todd Webb was covering the same terrain by bicycle, boat, and foot. Robert Frank's work has become an iconic piece of photographic history, but Todd Webb's project remains largely unknown. This is the first time their work has been shown together, offering a rare opportunity to explore America's diversity through their lenses. Discover this extraordinary exhibition at mfah.org slash across America. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Made in L.A. Acts of Living, the sixth iteration of the highly anticipated biennial exhibition, showcasing 39 artists and collectives living and working in Los Angeles. On view from October 1st to December 31st, and filling nearly every gallery of the museum, this year's edition addresses the intersection between art, community, and everyday life. These practices embrace the value of craft, materiality, performance, and collectivity. Accompanying the exhibition are artists' talks, performances, screenings, and conversations. For more information on the exhibition and programs, visit hammer.ucla.edu. 50 years ago, celebrated San Diego-based artist Eleanor Anton staged and photographed 100 boots on their cross-country trip from Solano Beach to New York City. A new exhibition at the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego includes the 51 postcards that document the boots' journey. Also on view is work by the collective My Barbarian, whose layered performances continue Anton's spirit of social critique and playfulness. Opening September 21st on view through February 2024. See Eleanor Anton and My Barbarian at the recently expanded Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego La Jolla campus. Plan your visit by going to mcasd.org. 
Welcome back. Next up, Scott Allen joins me to discuss Reckoning with Mie's Man with a Hoe, a show he curated for the J. Paul Getty Museum in Los Angeles. The show is an intensive look at arguably the most historically significant painting in the Getty's collection of 19th century European art. Man with a Hoe debuted in Paris in 1863, where it was attacked for its depiction and glorification of peasant labor. The exhibition is on view at the Getty through December 10th. The Getty published catalog is available from Amazon and IndieBound for about $27 to $30. Links on manpodcast.com. Scott Allen, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you so much, Tyler. It's a pleasure to be here. Jean-Francois Millet made his salon debut in 1840. His first painting acquired by the French government was shown in the 1847 salon, The Winnower, a wholly original scene of a peasant engaging in labor, in this case, separating grain from straw. So by 47, what Millet is interested in is done and established. And still, 16 years later, at the 1863 Salon, he exhibits the Gettys Man with a Hoe. As Simon Kelly writes in the delightful book that accompanies the show, Millet expected to be savaged for this picture. Why? I think he knew that he was really pushing up against established conventions for representing peasant subjects with this painting in particular. In a lot of ways, it's a deliberately anti-pastoral painting. If you think about pastoral representations going back to, you know, French Rococo art in the 1830 shepherds and shepherdesses and so on, it's really the antithesis of that. And while there was a pretty well-established peasant genre, you know, by the early 1860s in France, what typically you see are picturesque customs and costumes, regionally specific, hard labor, the hardship of labor is not front and center in these depictions. And that is what is really central to Millet's work and and this work in, in particular. I mean, he really ended up creating, I think Simon stresses this in his essay, kind of a new figure type. And the painting really has become this sort of icon of manual labor that really stuck and really rattled people's nerves. So was Millet right? Did critics and respondents see the picture and go nuts? Mostly, yes. I mean, Millet had a a small cadre of supporters who really responded to what was essentially a biblical conception that Millet had about the post-lapsarian condition of man and having to earn one's bread by the sweat of one's brow. This is a a line from Genesis that Mie repeats constantly. It's really central to his conception of his art and also, I think, his his life as a struggling, hardworking artist. And he was seen to bring a kind of a new kind of solemnity, kind of, quote-unquote, biblical poetry to this kind of subject in his representations. There was real pictorial ambition there in his effort to sort of monumentalize, aggrandize these ostensibly trivial subjects, or trivial at least according to still effective hierarchies of genre and subject dictated by the academy, a hierarchy that was, you know, fairly obviously classed, for instance. And Mie has this one line that he really wanted to make the trivial sublime. That was that's what basically summarizing his ambition. He talked about Michelangelo a lot. <laughs> you know, he had this kind of uh, artistic standard in mind. He wanted to sort of do for the French peasant what Michelangelo did for for his figures. And in some ways, that that ambition 
to monumentalize and aggrandize. That really ticked critics off. They thought it was unbearably sort of pretentious and that it betrayed also possibly a dangerous political agenda to elevate subjects like this, to make them carry so much sort of rhetorical weight. You know, there was a lot of kind of hinting that there was a sort of socialist agenda at work here. I mean, it was kind of a political provocateur. You know, this is in the, you know, repressive context of the Second Empire of Napoleon III. You know, the shadow of the 1848 revolution is still kind of there in the background. You know, a revolution where the politicization of the working classes, the laboring classes, both in the city and the countryside, was really a live political issue, right? And so the fact that Mie sort of start kind of latches onto these kind of subjects around that moment of the 1848 revolution, he's kind of associated with that revolutionary moment for some years afterwards. And you mentioned the uh, winnower, and you can probably picture that painting, but he's actively incorporated the colors of the, you know, Republican tricolor, the, the red, white, and blue into the peasant's costume. So there's a sense that I think like the democratizing energy of that moment really fed into Mie's kind of iconographic commitment to these peasant subjects. And there were a host of other reasons he turned onto these subjects, but there's that whiff of revolutionary politics that kind of follows him into the 1850s and, you know, up until this moment that he exhibits the man with a hoe. Are there th- elements of man with a hoe that are new or starkly different from the previous decade's worth of peasant paintings, anybody's peasant paintings? I don't think necessarily. I mean, there uh, in, in the exhibition at the Getty, I, I try to set the stage a little bit with some etchings of important compositions from the 1850s. And uh, undoubtedly, you'll know the gleaners, you know, these three women bending over, picking up the scraps from the harvest. That was shown in the 1857 Salon. And there was a lot of negative criticism around that painting that really anticipates some of the discourse around Man with the Hoe. And there were other compositions that Mie was doing where the peasant type that is really sort of fixed and centralized in Man with the Hoe are anticipated by earlier compositions. But there's something about that profiling of the single figure looming above the horizon, this kind of ungainly, ungainly, stiff posture, and also just the massive tool with this big, heavy blade. Like there was something threatening about the tool itself. And Simon talks about this a lot in his essay. There was this sort of shadow of violence that people detected in the painting. And the uh, man also has very large hands. And he has got large, strong hands that kind of feed into what you're talking about, I think. Yeah. And notoriously, he was compared to a serial killer whose trial and execution had really riveted the entire country the preceding year in 1862, Martin Dumoulard, who had murdered a large number of domestic workers in the countryside around Lyon. He had kind of lured women with the promise of employment and and then like robbed and murdered them. His wife was complicit too. It was a big trial. There were books published. It's a fascinating episode, but because Mie's Man with the Hoe gets stamped Dumoulard by caricaturists and critics. It kind of taints the picture, and it's a hard association to shake. 
So there's a storm of controversy around the painting's presentation in the salon. Does Mie respond either either in writing or in small s salon contexts that have carried down to us? Yeah, what's really fascinating in this case is that, you know, Mie is not, you know, a passive observer of all, all of this criticism. So by this point, you know, he's been living in the little village of Barbizon, not terribly far away from Paris since 1849, right? There's a rail link. It's pretty easy to get to and from Paris, but he doesn't like Paris. He's He likes living in Barbizon, and he has a good friend who's a civil servant in Paris, Alfred Sancier, who ends up writing the biography on Mie that all the Mie scholars rely upon. But because he's got an agent in Paris in the form of Sancier, and he's in Barbizon, we have this extraordinary body of correspondence between the two. And, and you know, in certain periods, it's like almost day by day, you can track what's going on. And so Celsius is actively reporting on the salon to Mie. Mie doesn't actually go. He's always suffering from migraines. He's got all these family issues to deal with. He's doing other work. But Celsius is reporting what this critic or that critic is saying. Mie is receiving press clippings. And at one point when, you know, the criticism was really bad, Celsius is sort of pleading with him, man, you got to write me some kind of statement that I can use to like arm myself against your critics. And Mie ends up writing, you know, this kind of creed de coeur artist statement, which has since become kind of a, a defining credo for the artist that gets in every single catalog entry on Man with the Hoe or discussion is sort of automatically you go to the letter that Mie wrote to Sancier. But it's a strategic intervention in the discourse, right? It's not just a spontaneous outpouring. And it was to kind of give Sancier some 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 language and some argumentation to, to counteract the criticism. And a big part of that letter is Mie's repudiation of the city and its mode of discourse, particularly political modes of discourse. And he's saying, I'm not, a, you know, that doesn't interest or concern me. What concerns me are these lines in the Bible about, you know, thou shalt, you know, eat thy bread from the sweat of thy brow. It's that sort of eternal biblical truth that he's trying to convey in, in a painting like this. He has bigger sights than just topical references and contemporary politics. And then the other major part of the letter is a repudiation of the charge that he's just some kind of radical realist who is glorifying ugliness. And, you know, the the charge that he was kind of glorifying ugliness is repeated a lot in the figure of the man with the hoe. And he's saying, no, he embraces all of God's creation and sees beauties everywhere. And gradually, Critics come on board with that idea as more of Millet's work is shown and the full extent of his rural imagery is known, particularly in some of his pastels, um, which become better known in the 1870s. There is a sense that, yes, he is very, very responsive to the beauties of nature. and But it's all of a piece for Millet, you know, the exhausted laborer in the fields, like grunting and groaning is part of this larger scene. It's all part of God's plan, and so forth. So there's this great letter that he writes. Sancier shows it around to some critics, and he eventually gets it published in this new publication called L'Autographe au Salon. And this publication features facsimiles of like little artist sketches and excerpts of letters and so on. And it's meant to kind of give readers 
a kind of an insider look in some of the popular salon artists of the day. And there's a whole page in 1864 devoted to this letter and some little sketches accompanying it. And Mie actually retranscribes the letter so that it will, you know, appear a certain way in this publication. So it's it's a very strategic intervention into into the critical discourse. And there's other letters that, that Simon talks about that were also published that he wrote to critics. So you know, it was a real battle of words that he was engaging in. Let me interrupt yeah. to raise that for a moment. So in 1863, a British photographer named Robert Bingham photographs the painting. This is both unusual and soon to not be unusual. I mean, this is beginning to happen on both sides of the Atlantic where photographers are taking pictures of paintings. Nobody quite knows how that's going to go. But it seems like a natural, you know, to, 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 to make a two-dimensional image of something that is more or less two-dimensional seems reasonable, even if nobody quite knows what to do with it. So, so the photograph is printed. How, how is that photograph mounted, if you will? It's above words, for example. And how is it used? Yeah. So as you were saying, the photographic reproduction of paintings is still in its infancy. There's a catalogue raisonné project devoted to Paul Delaroche in the late 1850s. That's a photographic project, and that's really one of the earliest instances. And the technology isn't quite there yet to get the full sort of tonal range and gradations in painting. You know, photography is great for sculpture and architecture, things like that, but it, it's not quite there with paintings yet, but it is evolving. And Bingham is at the forefront of this. You know, he's one of the kind of important pioneers of our photography. But this is, yeah, this is a, a kind of a newfangled scheme. I think it's a salted paper print and it's just, you know, it's pasted on paper. It's not a photomechanical reproduction. It's a photographic print pasted on a paper support or adhered to a paper support that has got a very extended caption, an, an excerpt from one of Michel de Montaigne's famous essays written in the 16th century. And the passage is all about kind of stoic peasant virtues, their sort of fortitude and constancy and so on. And it's really meant to sort of, I mean, suggest that, you know, Mie is not just some unlettered, rustic savage. He's a very lettered and literary artist who is thinking about the French classics and Poussin and Montaigne and these, these figures who are important in the French tradition. And he's presenting a dignified counter image to the critics who, who are typing the man with a hoe as like a beast or a cretin or a serial killer. So this is another discursive intervention. I don't know exactly, not a lot is known about this print. It was such hard work tracing down a copy to include in the show. I had never seen it reproduced in any of the Mie literature. I eventually, partly with Simon's help, located a print that was in the Musée Mie in Barbizon, a little house museum. And I got in touch with them, but the print was in horrible shape. It was in a kind of a bad, you know, not museum grade frame, poor glass, and the print was filthy. So we had it, we had it conserved in Paris and reframed for the exhibition. So I, I was really delighted to find a copy. It's a super important part of the narrative. It's an interesting piece of visual culture. To answer your question about how it was, I, I don't know how widely it was distributed. I know certainly like Mie and, and Sancier, you know, they were, I, I think, disseminating some copies around, circulating some copies. My sense is, given how rare surviving examples are, is that it wasn't, it didn't have a big impact and wasn't 
terribly widely circulated. But it is a really interesting. It is really interesting that Mie was willing to embrace photography to help promote and distribute his pictorial idea. This kind of grows from earlier projects, like he had embraced etching for similar reasons to disseminate his pictorial ideas at a lower price point. You know, there's a kind of a democratic idea there in the 1850s. And this is kind of a, an experimental extension of that. But really, like, it, it was conceived primarily to help market the painting. The idea came about soon after the painting ended up in the hands of the fashionable genre painter, Alfred Stevens. Stevens communicated to Sancier that he wanted to sell it. They, I think, had a conversation about a photographic reproduction. Mie was at first like, uh, you know, I'm not interested in all these kind of market, you know, shenanigans. But he came on board. And I think the caption is an indication of that. This was a, a passage that comes up in other contexts as well. The Bingham is actually an albumin print. This is early in the albumin printing period, you know, maybe a couple of years into it. I've done some work on 19th century photography of, of this period. And one of the things that is interesting to me that that Man with a Hoe gets photographed is already by 1863, there is a popular critical discourse about photography and truth, photography and veracity. Writers write things, I think on both sides of the Atlantic, like, you know, referencing that you can trust something in a photograph is true because you can put your fingers on its prints. And so there's this relationship between if you can see it in a photograph, it is much more true than if you see it in a painting on both sides of the Atlantic. Audiences are already used to the fictionalization of, say, landscape scenes by painters. And so that this, that Man with a Hoe is made into a photograph might be part of someone's Bingham's or, or, or Mie's saying, Hey, look, there is a truth here. I think that's such a brilliant point. I think that idea of the photograph enhancing the truth claim of the painting would definitely resonate with his conception of the painting itself. I think what he relished at this moment was in the kind of decadent cultural context of the Paris salon with filled with all of its sort of titillating Venuses and so on was to stage this confrontation. It's like, here's some, here's some hard rustic truth for you that gets at the fundamentals of the human condition on this earth. And I could see the photograph being part of that. And, you know, it's really, it makes me think automatically some of the caricatures of the painting. One famous caricaturist who went by the pseudonym Cham, who published these big, long caricatural reviews in Shirivari, this uh, caricatural journal. There's a caricature of Man with a Hoe that he did in 1863. But his series of caricatural reviews of the Salon was titled, I'm paraphrasing, it might not be verbatim, but it's basically the Salon of 1863 photographed by Cham, photographier par Cham. So the idea that, you know, he's he's getting the truth of the paintings in his caricatures, and then Mie with his photograph and the appropriate literary reference being the the counter discursive move there. And like, that's the truth of his painting. The fact that the caricatures are even referred to as photographs, like in a, you know, in a parodic way, but still like, you're, I think it's all, 
it's all it's all working together. You also have in your collection the drawing for Man with a Hoe. What do we learn by looking from one to other? The drawing is is really interesting. It's a fairly advanced compositional drawing, mostly in black chalk with a little bit of white chalk heightening, I think. The pose of the figure is a little bit different. The space in between his clogs is a a little bit narrower. I think the blade of the hoe kind of overlaps one of the clogs. The angle of his his proper left leg is a little more straight down. And really interestingly, in preparation for the show, we brought the final painting down to the conservation studio. We did some new technical imaging. We made a new x-ray of the painting. Then my conservator colleague, Debbie Orman, you know, was playing around on the computer and did a kind of a basic overlay of, you know, the figure in the drawing and, and then the figure revealed in the x-ray and they matched pretty closely. So that indicates that the drawing kind of represents kind of an, an, an early phase of the final painting. And then Millet made some adjustments as he worked on the final painting. He adjusted that the angle of the left leg, bringing it out a little bit more, opening up a little bit more space between the feet, creating a little bit of separation between the hoe blade and the feet. And the, the, the end result is a kind of a more stable pyramidal fig- figure, I think. In the drawing, you'll see that the left ankle is kind of oddly rolled, like he doesn't really stand firm on that left leg, like there's an infirm quality to the figure. Maybe there's a, residu- a residue of that in the final painting, but it's, it's, it's greatly minimized and it's a more kind of solid, stable figure. So these are, are subtle adjustments, but have a big impact, I think, on the, the final result. The drawing's interesting because, you know, it's signed, and I'm not remembering all the provenance offhand, but it's not a drawing that just was in the studio at Mie's death and, death and featured in the estate sale, the studio sale. It was something that entered the collector's market earlier and ended up with one of, you know, you had a handful of kind of dedicated drawing collectors. So I suspect that the drawing may have, while it may have served as a compositional drawing, it may have been also slightly worked up for the collector's market. It's a way that Mie made money. You know, selling paintings was really hard for him in the 1850s and early 1860s. And when he needed a quick 25 francs or whatever it, it was, you know, he'd have Sancier try to help sell drawings and he was able to make some quick money that way. And so I think the drawing also served a collector's market and the fact that it's sort of signed, it's got some white heightening, you know, all the basic elements of the composition are sort of there, whether you call it a preparatory study or a finished drawing, it's a little in between. It's a little in between. So it's interesting. Two other differences in the drawing. The man's knees are much larger in the drawings than in the painting, almost as if they're swollen. And the single tree that is in the background in the painting on the viewer's right is absent from the drawing, which is ends up being kind of a big difference. That tree ends up holding down the distant pinning down the distant landscape. I mean, if you know this was a US painting, I could argue that if it was like an elm tree, it was a specific address mm. of the United no, States. No, uh, you're right. You're right. I, yeah, I mean, I yeah, I was, sorry, I didn't get into all the differences with the landscape, but it's a more, it's a deeper, more extensive space in the final painting. I mean, and he's got all the resources of color to help create that. But no, I think you're absolutely right in the placement of the tree helps deepen the space in in a kind of a subtly subtle but dramatic way 
About the drawing in the market, our, we first have record of it entering the market in 1874. It will end up in the collection of William H. Crocker, the same Californian who ends up owning, owning the painting. One of your arguments, especially in the catalog, is that once Man with a Hoe enters the U.S. in 1890, it over the decades becomes as much American as French. Why? How did that happen? Well, I think, I mean, first off, the American reception and collecting of Mie starts in the 1850s. There are, you know, Bostonians, artists and collectors who are turned on to Mie before a lot of, you know, French collectors. It's really like Belgians and Americans who are some of Mie's first kind of big, big uh, buyers, which is an interesting history that we don't, you know, we don't get into too much in this, in this little focused book. And then it really explodes in the years after Mie's death in 1875. And so his death kind of coincides with the sort of beginning of this big art market bubble in France around contemporary French painting, which is fueled in large part by this huge influx of, uh, you know, American money in the post-Civil War years. It's like that moment when American collectors, you know, particularly on the East Coast and the Midwest are are starting to buy contemporary 19th century French art in a very, very serious way. And it really kind of the market explodes in the 1870s and 1880s. There's a lot of interesting art history being done around, you know, sort of Gilded Age American collecting in these years. And Mie is like the artist kind of the t- at the top of that bubble, right? His his prices are increasing exponentially uh, in the years following his death in 1875. And it kind of all culminates in 1889 with this fierce transnational bidding contest for Mie's Angelus, which is this painting of two peasants pausing in their labors for the evening prayer. It's this kind of sentimental scene of peasant piety, which was easily Mie's most famous composition, had moved a lot in the art market in the 70s and 80s. And it came up for auction in 1889 and sold for like more than 500,000 francs. It was a world record and so forth. Went on a big American tour. James Sutton of the American Art Association bought it, went on a big American tour. And then a French department store magnet bought it back the next year in 1890 for 750,000 francs. So there was this kind of incredible media interest in the MIE market in this late 1880s moment, primarily because of the Angelus. And there was real fervent cultural nationalism in France. Like they really felt like the Americans were draining France of their cultural patrimony, you know, where just like all this stuff was going to American buyers and the French state wasn't moving quick enough to kind of capture some of it for French museums. And the prices were too high. They got too high too fast and sort of like that opportunity was gone. And so there was a lot of interest about the kind of the trajectory of these major Mie paintings. And so when the Angelus was lost, this French buyer bought the Gleaners, you know, for for the French state as a patriotic gesture. And, and that was big news. And while all of this was happening, Durand Ruel, the famous dealer of the French Impressionists, he had acquired Man with a Hoe in the early fall of 1890. He was exhibited in, in his gallery in Paris. And almost the exact same day that the news went out that this department store magnet had bought the Angelus and that the Angelus was returning to France, you know, a major a major victory for 
for French art museums. On that very same day in Durand-Ruel's stock, stock books is recorded the sale of Man with the Hoe to the Crockers of San Francisco. So like all the media glare was on the Angelus and what was going on with the Angelus and Durand-Ruel was like, had the opportunity to sell Man with the Hoe, which was always a more difficult and challenging painting. It did not have the same collector appeal because of this sort of more difficult, aesthetically challenging subject. But it's really interesting, the timing of all of this. And so Man with the Hoe kind of leaves France. There's not a lot of attention and focus on it. And I think by the beginning of 1891, it's in San Francisco and the newspapers kind of exult. We have a Mie now, and it's a big... It's a big moment for kind of the elites of, of San Francisco. The acquisition is seen as a way to kind of put San Francisco on the cultural map and to help elevate artistic production, local artistic production. And the Crockers have various philanthropic interests, and they exhibit the painting locally in San Francisco almost right away to benefit I think like an orphanage and a home for destitute children, some other local institutions. And then in 1893, the painting is shown in Chicago at the World's Columbian Exposition in an exhibition of, I think, just called uh, Foreign Masterpieces Owned in the United States. And it was an exhibition, a loan exhibition designed to show the new like collecting clout of, of American collectors and the Crocker's Land Man with the Hoe and and there was a lot of other, you know, blue chip French 19th century painting in that in that exposition. And and it was sort of a moment when the, the U.S. as a nation, you know, with, with collectors was sort of trying to demonstrate its collecting, collecting heft on the international stage. And that's a moment where, at least to my knowledge, that this sort of the mass reproduction images of the painting really starts taking off. There's this portfolio called the Art Gems from the World's Columbian Exposition, which is promoted through newspapers at the time, through coupon promotions. And it's these kind of cheap reproductions, photolithographs, that kind of thing, that are pretty soon ubiquitous, like across the country, you know, by the early years of the 20th century, everybody's got, you know, Mie reproductions in their house. You know, Angelus is the most popular, but then there's also Gleaners and Man with a Hoe. And I think really for for people who grew up in the U.S. in the first, you know, two-thirds of the 20th century, reproductions of Man with a Hoe were really hard to avoid. Like, they were in all the schools, they were in fundraising exhibitions, and, you know, all sorts of support from, like, the lowest end to the highest end. So I think mass reproduction had a big role to play. And then, of course, there's the famous poem by Edwin Markham, The Man with the Hoe, published in 1889 in the San Francisco Examiner. That really kicks kickstarts the American reception of the painting. And it's really through the lens of Markham's poem and all the debates around Markham's poem, which John Ott brilliantly explores in the book, that the reception of the of the painting really has this very specific American discursive context. And then Markham, like this poem is just about the most famous poem in all of American literary history in terms of its its mass dissemination and how everybody knew it. Kids would learn it in school. I learned it in school in the 1980s, you know, in a literature class. Like it had long legs, this poem. The painting just kind of became part of American popular culture. I mean, in the introduction to the book, there, there are cartoon strips and Jolly Green Giant 
advertisements from the 1940s. It was just, it was in the media sphere. <laughs> so I, and then, then just thinking, you know, 1890 to today, it has a lot longer history in the United States than it did in Europe, you know, just by virtue of, you know, the, the chronology there. And part of the reason I wanted to focus on this at the Getty is because it's the painting with the longest Californian and American provenance. In the collection, the only painting that comes close is our Segantini Spring in the Alps painting, which was acquired just a couple of years ago, which came to San Francisco in 1897. So that that's that's close. Scott Allen, thanks very much. Thank you, Tyler. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.